So what I want to do this morning uh, before we get into the text is I, I want to set the table uh, per se for where we've been in this section in Romans. If I were to ask you a question, if you've been here the last few Sundays or you're following along on the live stream, if I were to ask you who is the main focus of Romans 9, 10, and 11, who would you say? The Jews. Okay, I think I heard that, or Israel. I was, I was also testing my ability to teach uh, by asking that question, so I'm glad that you didn't say something strange that wasn't even found in the text or anything like that. Um, Israel is the main focus of these verses, and as we've looked at now over the last few months, the Apostle Paul was greatly concerned for his fellow countrymen. Uh, He began in chapter 9 by saying, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for those that are separated from God, that are of the nation of Israel. In Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is for their salvation. And so as we've looked at these verses or chapters over the last few weeks now, uh, Paul's great desire for Israel is that they would know Jesus as their Messiah. And so Paul is bringing us through this portion of Scripture that shows God's faithful dealings with Israel in their past, in their present, and now in Romans 11, their future. So it... Paul didn't add the chapter uh, breaks in the scriptures. He didn't write the verse breaks. We did that to help us in our reading and study of God's word. Uh, But I I think it does a pretty good job of breaking the flow of thought. Romans 9 is God's past dealings with Israel. Romans 10 is God's present dealings with Israel. And Romans 11 focuses on God's future dealings dealings with Israel. And and you might be sitting there and thinking, well, if this is what it's all about, I'm not Jewish. And so what does it mean for me? I don't know if you've thought that as we've looked at this passage over the last few weeks and months thinking, that's not my identification. So how does this apply? What does it mean? How does it work in my life? And, And I just want to encourage you that if you've been with us Uh, through this section of Scripture. And even today, we're going to see it again. That the main point we see is that God is a promise keeper. He keeps His promises. We're talking about a people that God has a long history with. And as He works on their behalf, even in spite of themselves, He keeps His promises. I don't know if that sounds like you. Even in spite of yourself, right? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that most times in our spiritual life, we are our own worst enemy. We get in the way of what God wants to do and work and through our lives. Now, sure, there's a lot out there in the world, sin, temptation, Satan. There is a collision of two worldviews of the flesh and the spirit But if you really distill it down, we get in the way a lot of what God wants to do in our lives. And I just want to encourage you this morning as we look at this passage, God keeps his word. He's not going to give up. He never gives up on his people. And although 
the nation of Israel would rather focus on law keeping, religion, following all the rules, doing all the things, checking all the boxes. As they were trying to find righteousness, God declares that one day Israel will find their true righteousness in Jesus Christ. That is the promise of Romans chapter 11. If you're there and you you look further down in verse 26, we read, And so all Israel will be saved. And we'll talk about what that means later on. But here is the truth of what Paul is saying. As God is keeping His promises to these people that have largely rejected Him and the gift of the Messiah, Paul says there is a day coming when all Israel will be saved. That's an amazing uh, promise. We hold on to those things. I'm encouraged in my faith to read something like that. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to see the, the perspective of where God's future with Israel fits into His plan of redemption and what encouragement we can draw from it. Another, another part of the table that we're setting this morning before we look at the text is that this passage helps us to see the unfolding plan of God's redemption. So we're looking into the future, we're looking into what God will do, and that helps us to understand what is involved as God is bringing total redemption to His creation. And chapter 11 especially calls us to consider the covenant-keeping promises of God. As I said in verse 26, Israel is going to be saved, and that forces us to consider what is Israel's place in God's plan of redemption. Because we think about it in terms of we're the church, we're followers of Jesus, we are the set-apart ones, we're the called-out ones, we're the people that Jesus has set apart now in the world to share the love and hope of the gospel. And yet there's still a people that God had worked with that have been set aside for this time, but God's going to return to them, and they fit into the plan of God. And so you might be thinking, How does that work? How do the pieces come together? Now in the future, when Jesus returns, and the Scriptures are clear that Jesus is returning. Let me say that again. The Scriptures are clear. Jesus is returning. And when He puts His feet on the earth, there is a time of great trouble that will culminate with judgment. And after the culmination of that great judgment that falls on the earth, there will then be a thousand-year kingdom of the Messiah, King Jesus. When Jesus returns, He's coming back as a king to rule as a king. And part of that kingdom is the nation of Israel. Israel is a part, is a huge part in that kingdom. Israel is will make its way through the time of great tribulation and enter into their Messiah's kingdom and they will be given a portion in a land that was promised to them way back in the Old Testament. And so we see in Romans 11 that Paul is teaching us about the future of what's happening, what will take place as God will save all of Israel 
Now, we teach this, and, and we affirm this teaching here at North Anvil Bible Church. and We call this, this view of the future dispensational theology. Now, I, I might have lost you at the phrase dispensational. But dispensational theology is basically just this. God is progressively working out the plan of redemption through periods of time, which will culminate in the return of Jesus as he sets up the eternal kingdom. Now, not all churches believe this nor teach it. You may have a church background or uh, you've been at a church that taught that Israel is not a part of God's future. And maybe they didn't specifically say it, but when, when they talk about the future, there's no room for the Jewish people. There's only room for the church. And they teach and believe that the church has replaced Israel, that the promises of the Old Testament are spiritually applied to the New Testament church. And I would say to that, what do you do with Romans 11? If God is going to save Israel, all of it, and you look at all the other passages of Scripture, like in Revelation, how there's 144,000 from the nation of Israel that are saved, and that Jesus gave clear promises to the people that He came to save, and that the Old Testament again and again in the Abrahamic and Davidic and Palestinian covenants or promises that God made, that they will be a part of it. What do you do with all of it? You, you can't get rid of it. And so Romans 11 helps us form an understanding of the future. I'm not going to say we're going to figure it all out and solve all the questions and, and all that, but I, I want you to see this too, that there, are, there is a people on the earth today that seem far from God. The God that we know in Scripture, namely Israel, that God is going to keep His promises to. Did you ever talk to a Jewish person about Jesus? Did you ever hear a Jewish person talk about Jesus? I mean, we're talking universal differences. <laughs> and sometimes they look at you and think, you're out of your brain. And you think, how can you not get it? Because the same Old Testament we read tells us very specifically that the Messiah that you need to believe in was promised for you. But as we look at this passage together, we're going to see God's future dealings with Israel. But we shouldn't check out. You shouldn't say, well, I'm not Jewish, so I'm just going to take a nap right now. Now, I heard something. I didn't hear exactly what it was, but Pastor Dustin said, if you found something, don't shoot it at me. This isn't the, this isn't the time to do that. I don't even know what it was. So, um, you know, but don't, don't look out the window and say, boy, it looks really good out there. You know, let's plan our afternoon. I love what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says this, All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we look at this passage about the future. We look at this encouragement that we see about God keeping His Word. And we who are people that know Jesus, we can read the Scriptures and the promises that are written and, and stand on the firm ground of a risen Savior who is yes and amen to everything that God has said. He is the security of our salvation. Church, you can be sure that God's going to keep His word to you. 
I don't know how you were thinking or processing this morning before you came into the the church uh, building. I don't know what you're going through specifically. I don't know what doubts are weighing on your heart. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you've read. and, And now you're living and thinking, is this true? How does it work? You can be sure the yes and amen to everything that God says is that there is a Savior who is alive. And His name is Jesus. God is going to keep His word to you. We also see in this passage that God will always preserve a people for Himself. He will always preserve a people on earth. The Scriptures call this group a remnant. Some of you have shopped for carpet remnants before. That's not what that's talking about. Um, Romans 11 helps us to see that there is never a time where a person on the earth will be the only person of faith. Do you ever feel alone in your Christian life? And, And you know what I'm talking about. Like you go to church and you know other people believe, but you ever go through something and you feel like I'm the only one. Where is the, where are the other people? It just seems like I'm the only one that's trying to figure all this out. Well, this passage reminds us that God will always preserve a remnant. There will always be a group of people that love God. And we may look at the evidence and see say otherwise, but God's word is true and God's word says that there are people who love Him just like us. And so as we look at this text together, I'm going to give you my two big thoughts right now. And I'm going to leave them on the screen. Hopefully through hearing and seeing and remembering, you'll, you'll uh, get the sense of it um, if the clicker works. There we go. I've already said it, right? God keeps His Word and we are never alone. You can write those two statements over this passage because that's really the takeaway that we can see as we look at Romans 11, 1 through 6. Let me read these verses for you and, and, and keep those two thoughts in mind as we read the, the text of Scripture. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God keeps His word and we are never alone. Now the focus is on national Israel. It's on the people of God that we read about in the Old Testament that began with Abraham. Remember Father Abraham who was called and and God made promises to him to give him a land, a seed, and a blessing. And, And we read in Genesis as God called this man, he was with God and Abraham walked with God on the earth as he walked by faith. His faith made him right with God. And out of Abraham 
came Isaac, and out of Isaac came Jacob, and out of Jacob came a bunch of sons, and those sons became the nation of Israel. We're focusing on national Israel and how they fit into God's plan in the future, and to show us that God is not rejected as people. God, or Paul gives us four arguments in Romans 11, 1 through 6 that show us God's faithfulness. And so we're going to look at these four arguments that show that God is faithful to his people. The first one is this. It's the argument of Paul himself. Paul is the example. He's the first example to show as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome to remind them that God has not forgotten his people, that they are special to him. Paul is the example of God's faithfulness. What does he say? I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? He asks the rhetorical question, that we already know the answer to, but in case we're kind of stuck on it, he gives us the answer, may it never be. In the Greek language, we've talked about this phrase, meganointa. It's the strongest negative. It's a no, not ever, absolutely not, not a possibility. Like It's not even a whisper of a thought that this could be true. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. And what does he say to prove that? He says, look at my life. I too am an Israelite. The apostle to the Gentiles that wrote much of the New Testament that went to the Gentile areas in his lineage, in his bloodlines, in who he once was, he's an Israelite. He's a Jewish person. What does he say? He says this about himself. He's a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, commentators, pastors have tried to figure out why did he highlight the tribe of Benjamin alone? And there's a bunch of different possibilities. Um, I think as we look at the text, as he's writing about his lineage, where he came from, what we see is the tribe of Benjamin comes from the son Benjamin, and Benjamin was the only one that was born in the promised land when you read it in the book of Genesis. All of the other children were born out of the land, but Benjamin was born of Rachel and Jacob in the promised land. And we see here that Paul is remembering where he came from. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he adds some other things about his lineage. And if you want to turn there, you can, but I'll read them for you. Um, He says this in Philippians 3, 5. uh, He was circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He came from a background like Paul wasn't just a Jewish person. He was a Jewish person par excellence. He was climbing the ladder in the Jewish religion, in all of the systems, in all of the stuff about what it means to follow God concerning the Old Testament. He was rising the ladder to be the preeminent Pharisee. And when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected and ascended to heaven and the church was born, Paul, who was once called Saul, was one of the first Jewish people that was actively persecuting the early church. He casted his vote when Stephen was martyred or killed for his faith. Paul is saying as he looks back on his life, the evidence of God's faithfulness to Israel is that God saved me. 
God didn't forget someone like Paul. Listen, if, a, if Paul, a former blasphemer of Jesus and persecutor of the church, can find salvation, the rest of Israel can find salvation. God has not rejected the Israelites because they have rejected Him. He's going to keep His word. The second argument we see is in verse 2. It's the argument of God's faithfulness concerning election. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Now, if you've been with us long enough, we've been talking about this tough thing, this tough concept, this tough theological understanding of election. In Romans chapter 8, it was introduced to us as we see that those whom God foreknew, He also called. And we are called to the purpose of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In Romans 9, we, we looked at the example of Jacob and Esau, how God chose the younger Jacob over Esau, the older And it wasn't based on anything that the children did. It was based on God's good pleasure. Here in Romans 11, I don't think that we're talking about individual, personal salvation election. I think in Romans 11, as we're talking about the nation of Israel, we're talking about corporate, like the nation itself, the people of God that were known in the Old Testament. And so we look in verse 2 when he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, We're talking about the fact that God made national promises to a group of people and he's going to keep those promises. Now that doesn't mean that every person who bears the name Jew is going to be saved. That means that the people of Israel that will believe in the Messiah will be saved. And God has foreknown that that nation will be His. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Amos, that minor prophet tucked into the end of the Old Testament. We read in Amos 3, 2, You, Israel, only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, 6. We read this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen, when God visited Abraham, who was once Abram, and called him, there was nothing special that Abraham did. God showed up and said, I'm choosing you. And that's it. That was God's desire. And these people that come from Abraham are special and peculiar. And don't we see that in world history? Oh, you better believe it. Who are the most persecuted people on the earth since the creation of time? The nation of Israel. And they're still around. Through tragic atrocities committed towards them. They're still here. There's something divine about that. There's promises that are being kept behind that. Even though many in Israel have turned their backs on God, and especially His Son, Jesus, God has not turned His back on Israel. The last verse in chapter 10 says this, 
But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands. Right? It's the imagery of a, of a father saying, please, just come close to me. And what does Paul say as he quotes Isaiah? The people are disobedient and obstinate. They're stiff-necked. They're hard-hearted. Now let me give you a crash course in Old Testament history on the stiff-neckedness of the nation of Israel. It began at the, the, the genesis of their nation, the beginning of who they are as a people. When they came out of Egypt in the Exodus, they came to Mount Sinai. Moses is hanging out on top of the mountain, receiving the law of God, the commandments of God, and they are at the base of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. Moses comes down, and in Exodus 32, verses 9 and 10, this is what God says. I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and then I'll make you into a great nation. That's God speaking, and He's saying, Moses, I'm starting over. I'm going to start over with you. I'm done. Forty years later, well, let me just back up. Moses interceded and said, God, you, you don't really mean that. Let's not get into the theology of questioning and, 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 and all those things. But, but we do know this. God has a consuming jealousy for his people. That is also true for in the New Testament age. Can I say this about you? If you know God and you know God's love through Jesus Christ, he is jealous over you. And every time that you play... Uh, with things that are far from God, away from God, the idols of your heart. You play with the sin that is in your heart when you pursue the things of your flesh. God is jealous over you. He wants you to come home. He wants you to be with Him. So God didn't, you know, lightning bolt out of the finger of he- you know, in heaven and zap Him off the face of the earth. Uh, some of them were judged. The, the ground opened up and they died, some in the nation of Israel, but not as a, a nation. So they left Mount Sinai and they're making their way through the, the wilderness on the way to the land of promise that God was going to give them. And 40 years later, Moses said this to the Jewish people in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6. Understand then that this is not because of your righteousness. What is this? Their entrance into the promised land. Moses is speaking on God's behalf and he's writing to these people and he says, as we enter into this land, don't think for a second that your feet entering the land is based on anything that you have done. Listen to what is said about the Jewish people. It is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until the day you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. Like These aren't people that along the way, they're just giving high fives to God and say, thank you so much for your grace. If you read about Israel's history in the wilderness, they're complaining all the time. 
In fact, they say at one point they'd rather go back to Egypt and be slaves in Egypt because they're tired of eating manna and quail every day. And they're tired of wandering through the desert. They forgot that God keeps His promises and there's something greater down the road for them. This is the repeated characterization of the Jews right at the very beginning and throughout the prophetic history of Israel in the Old Testament. Let let me just share with you some other quick thoughts about Israel's uh, frustrating, tense, from their side relationship with God. Isaiah said that they were as rebellious as Sodom and Gomorrah. Jeremiah the prophet was commanded not even to pray for them when they were facing exile in Babylon. Daniel the prophet poured out his heart and soul in Daniel 9 in prayer for his own people and for their sins. Nehemiah the prophet, after the restoration, remember they were judged, they were kicked out of the land. Now they're allowed to return back into the land by God's faithfulness. Nehemiah, who led that charge, after they returned from Babylon, prayed this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 29 and 30. We read, You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your own ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you. They became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. Like, thankfully, I'm not God. But if I was God, and this is now the fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh or however many times, like more than two times that this was said about a people, I'd be like, you know, it's time to find some people that actually love me. Now, around the same time as Nehemiah lived, there was another man, Ezra, who was a priest He was so frustrated with the Jews that he pulled out his hair. He was so frustrated. I don't have any to pull out. John, you understand. He pulled out his hair. He's like, what else can we do? What else can God say? How else can he work? What else do you need to see? They violated the old covenant by intermarrying with the pagan women of the nation that they came back into. And he was so frustrated that as he prayed, he's just pulling his hair out. Israel's constant pattern of rejection of the messengers now culminated in the murder of their Messiah. They killed Jesus. Now God saw to it that Gentiles were also involved through Pilate and the Romans but the Jewish people stand guilty due to their rejection. Stephen, that first martyr of the faith that I referred to earlier, preaches a sermon, and he says this, and so does Paul before the Sanhedrin, and so does Peter, but all three of these men give testimony that say that the Jews killed the author of life. It was them that did it. And this is the constant pattern. 
Now, all of this was ample ground for God to have rejected these people. God had the power to do it. And God could have simply done it in a matter of holiness. But Romans 11 says again and again, God will not reject His people. Can I ask you, is God faithful? You betcha. He is absolutely faithful. God wants to display His glory in returning the hearts of Israel back to Him. God keeps His Word. The third argument we see is about Elijah. Prophet Elijah in the second part of verse 2, we read this. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And let me just stop right there. And when he says, or do you not know, it's not that the people in uh, the Roman church didn't know. They would have known the Scriptures if they came from a Jewish background. And, and there were there those that came to faith from a Jewish background. They would have known what uh, happened to Elijah. But we read, Uh, In verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so the the, the quick view of this is that in verse 3, when we read these words, and these are the words from the prophet of Elijah that are quoted from us uh, from 1 Kings 19, verses 10 and 14, that when we read about Elijah, this is Elijah's pity party. Do you ever feel bad about yourself and you want everyone to know about it? You have. Don't lie to me. We're we're good like that. We we want to trumpet our and, and herald out the news that woe is me. This is what's going on in Elijah's life. In, in 1 Kings 18, we read the supernatural, amazing event of the prophet Elijah being called by God to contend with all of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And like hundreds of them are wiped out by the power of God. And Elijah is the prophet of the true and living God. And at the end of 1 Kings 18 into the first verses of 1 Kings 19, after that grand event, could you imagine being called by God to contend with the prophets of this world? And you know what the prophets of this world are, right? It's all around us. The the, the counterfeit faith that people are peddling that says, if you believe in this, if you trust in this, and I'm not just talking about deities, I'm talking also about, you know, humanistic thinking. I'm talking about the things of this world that are saying, you can't live without this. Like, if God called you to stand in the court of all those people that are peddling those things, and you stood with great conviction and declared the power of God, and by the power of God, they were all banished. Wouldn't you celebrate that? I mean, you'd be like, hallelujah, my God is amazing. This is great. I will never deny him again. I will never not believe in what he said. But in 1 Kings 19, right after Mount Carmel happened, we see that the leaders of the, the, the land that, that Elijah was a prophet in, King Ahab and Jezebel, they come for blood. They want to kill Elijah. 
They've made a mockery. He's made a mockery of their gods. So what is 1 Kings 19? It's Elijah's pity party. And he's running. Like if you add up all the time that he ran in 1 Kings 19, he ran 20 miles from one place to another place, and then he ran 100 miles from one place to another place. He ended up on the same mountain where, where Moses received the law of God. That far south. And he's running. Like I don't know if he was a runner, but he learned how to run. And he's up on the mountain crying, lamenting. And he's doing all of this for God. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. Like, what else do I have to do? After the lament of Elijah, God responds. 1 Kings 19, 18. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. See, Elijah didn't see it. He didn't see it in the, in, through the stream of his tears. He couldn't see what God was doing as he was saving a remnant What he's saying, what God is saying to Elijah, what God is saying to Paul, and what he's saying to the church in Rome, and what he is saying to us today, is that God always reserves for himself a people, a remnant. This is the example of the balance between God's sovereignty, that he is king. He reserves for himself. Do you see that in the text? In verse 4, I have kept for myself, I have reserved for myself. So that's God's sovereignty. He keeps people for himself. This is the balance between his sovereignty and also our responsibility. What is the human responsibility in verse 4? Who are the people that God kept? They're the people that did not bow a knee to Baal. God's sovereign, we're responsible. And so God keeps his promises to keep a people throughout the ages. We're never alone. Verses 5 and 6 is the application of those who are preserved, the 7,000. We read this. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Even now there is a remnant. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. I I love that last part of verse 6. What a great definition of grace. What is grace? It's the absence of works. God's grace is not based on any merit. If it was, it would no longer be grace. It would be works. What Paul is saying is what is true then and it's true now that there is a remnant according to God's gracious choice and it's by His grace. It's not by what we do. It's not by effort. God is protecting a remnant by His sovereign choice. God has the power in the end to raise up a remnant. He does. And it will be the final generation of the Jews, as we talked about earlier when I set the table of the future. 
It's the final generation of the Jews that God will raise up to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be people from the Jewish nation, when Jesus returns, they will cry out in faith that he is the Messiah. And Jesus talked about this when he said that there is a judgment at the end of that time. Not only is there judgment on the earth for those that are wicked, but there's a judgment for the Jewish people that he will divide the people like sheep and goats. And the sheep will enter in to the pasture of the Messiah's kingdom. Now, a final thought for us as we close. Never doubt God's work in your life. Don't doubt that God is at work in in the world and don't doubt that God is working amongst His people, the Jewish people. What I found in my own experience, and you might need to hear this the whole way through to understand what it means, but as as I am constantly reminded to never doubt God's work in my life, uh, there's a verse I came across. It's Isaiah 45, 15. It says this, Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. That sometimes God hides himself from us and what he's doing. Did you, did you ever experience that in your own life? Did you ever say in faith to God, God, I have no idea what you're doing right now. I find myself there often. I'm being completely honest with you. There are times in prayer where I'm crying out to God and I say, God, can you please just give me a little bit because I I can't see it. I can't see what you're doing. We don't know what God's doing. We don't know what God is doing. And that is for His own purpose. Why does He do that? Why does He hide His work from us often? Especially as we serve Him, especially as we try to live for Him, especially as we're trying to figure out what that call looks like in our life, because I think that's true. Well, let me ask you this way. Suppose God gave you a window into the future and showed you what it would be like to live for Him, all of the outcomes, everything at the end. Like, maybe you're feeling... God's call to stand up for him in a place that you never did before. So what if God showed you what that would look like if you did that? You know what you would do? You would do what I would do. You would boast over what you've done. When God hides his work from you when he's calling you to something, it's not to trick you. It's not to to frustrate you. It's to make you dependent upon Him every step of the way. If He showed you everything, you'd think too highly of yourself. Galatians 6, 9 says this, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't weary in doing good. You may not see the end of it. You may not see what's happening. You may not see how God's going to bring it all together. Don't weary in doing good, because at the right time you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. 1 Corinthians 15.58 
Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Can I ask you this? Have you ever served God and you feel like you're just running out of energy? And, and you, you're, you're struggling to find joy? And you think, how long do I have to keep doing this? You know what happens in churches our size, right? Pastor Dustin's going to come up and say, we need children's ministry workers. And you're going to think, oh, if I agree to that, I'll be doing it for 50 years. (laughs) Can I just encourage you? If God calls you to 50 years of children's ministry, that's what he wants you to do. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you do it for the Lord... There's no, there's no frustration in it. You may not see a lot of fruit in it. I remember uh, the first few years of pastoral ministry that Ange and I were involved in in, in a small little church in, in northwest Pennsylvania. We got there and we move in. And, you know, I'm thinking about ministry. I'm thinking about um, what we're doing week in, week out. And for a period of time, I didn't see a lot of fruit. It just felt like we were hitting a lot of obstacles, running into a lot of walls. And I was thinking, what on earth are you doing, God? And God said, just stay faithful to me. And it took some time. Uh, Just practically here. You know, we'll be here 10 years in October. It hasn't been 10 years full of doing cartwheels down the aisle saying, woo! this is great. Nothing has ever, bad has ever happened. There's no issues, no challenges in ministry. And, and, and there's no challenges in my own heart. And like I said, I'm the biggest problem in my spiritual life. And so when I look at things and think, God, why, why did you call me to this? God is saying, just stay faithful. Don't give up when you don't see the fruit. God is at work all the time. He did it through Elijah when Elijah couldn't see it. And sometimes you're going to feel it too. Remember, God keeps His word and you are never alone. Let's pray.